This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome, everyone, to this week of Burn It All Down. It might not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sports podcast you need. This week, it is myself, Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter at Think Progress, and joining me is Shireen Ahmad, a freelance sports writer from Toronto. Hey, Shireen, how are you doing? Hey, Lindsay, I'm good, thanks. It's just you and me today, steering the ship all by ourselves. You think we can make it? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, great. So today we're going to be uh, referring back to a topic that we talk about, unfortunately, often, which is violence against women in sports. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about it through a baseball context. Then we're going to take on the Olympics and um, rain on the parade that is happening in LA to celebrate their Olympic bid. And then we're going to give a quick women's soccer update. Shireen's going to have us there. And then I'm going to talk with Rhiannon Walker, an associate editor at The Undefeated, who has done some phenomenal work over the last week on Black Tennis Week. So she's really dug into the history of racism in tennis, the most important Black figures from HBCUs to the Black press to trailblazers like Arthur Ashe and Althea Gibson in tennis. And she's looked, of course, all the way to Richard Williams, the coach of the Williams sisters and the father, who this week was inducted into the American Tennis Association Hall of Fame. So her work on that was phenomenal. And I can't wait to, to sit down with her and talk through all of that. Of course, we will then have the burn pile and the badass woman of the week. So even though there's just two of us, I think we should dig right in because I don't think we're going to have trouble uh, talking this week. <laughs> <laughs> We never have before, Shereen. No. <laughs> so look, let's talk about sexual violence in baseball. Uh, this week, it's been in the news, uh, thanks to former Burn It All Down guest Jen Ramos, who wrote for the Hardball Times a piece about how baseball really needs to do better about handling sexual violence. I was really struck by this piece because it it went through all of the examples kind of in baseball history, which goes way back of the way that sports teams and the media and the league as a whole have mishandled this information, the way it's often really buried. Shereen, what did you think about this article and, and, and how do you feel like baseball is doing? Well, Jen's piece was phenomenal. Um, it was, like you said, published earlier this week. And admittedly, I don't know... Baseball is not my go-to sport, but I learned so much. But the way that they also wrote the piece was really incredible because 
What, in addition to, as you mentioned, citing historical examples of sexualized violence in baseball and how either the clubs would dismiss it or the statements of the lawyers would, it would work out that way. They would be, um, make these sort of vacuous comments. So I'm glad that they're, you know, this person's, this athlete's life was about to be ruined or whatnot. Jen actually included a document to, um, which I thought was really, really profound and really, really important to keep adding a document to keep adding to instances that are probably underreported because they also added like studies and stats to talk about false reports because that's, as we know, it's a very common defensive mechanism and, and wrongly so of people to say, oh, it's false reporting is so high. But Jen indicated and, and used backup. She used research and reports, academic reports as well, to say this is not true about false reporting. Like the stats are very low, actually. Um, I was really, I think the whole thing was was really important. And another thing that I think we've talked about on the show as well, Jen also referenced the way that this is written about. And for me, that's really important. And it's something that Jess has said, I've heard her say a bunch of times that who actually does the writing is as important as what's being discussed. So who is writing about rape and sexualized violence in baseball? Do they have the knowledge of using the right words? Have they been through a media toolkit? Do they understand the implications of how they write about it like I think this is really important generally Jen's piece really gave me a lot to think about yeah I agree she really put it in a a context of the history as we said of the sport but also of studies like you know studies of how we talk about this I just keep always going back to a few incidents that baseball had last year with uh, Chapman and Ray's and, and I was reading about Rays this week, and just to give you a little recap, uh, Jose Rays, who is uh, currently on the Mets, in late 2015, um, Rays and his w- wife, Catherine, were fighting loudly at a hotel. Um, security was called. Uh, his wife told the responding officer that Rays grabbed her off the bed and shoved her and grabbed her by the throat and shoved her into a sliding glass balcony door. So this is, of course, domestic violence um, that we're discussing here. She was taken to the hospital. She did stay with Rays, and like many women do, she didn't go through with pressing charges and seems like did not cooperate with the MLB's investigation. Rays was suspended for 51 games last year, and he, but he's now back. He is very celebrated by the Mets organization and by baseball fans. And I came across this article because I haven't been um, following the Mets super closely this year, but I came across this article by CJ Anderson on CBS Sports today about Rays. And I just want to read this because keep in mind his backstory that I just told you. It said Rays has been by far the worst hitter among Mets regulars, yet he's second on the team in plate appearances. In fact, you can make the case that Rays has been one of the worst players in baseball. The Mets, however, are showing more loyalty to arguably the worst player in baseball than they are to just about anyone else in their clubhouse. (laughs) So all of this is happening after he was suspended for domestic violence, after he showed 
pretty much no remorse for this. And after he was accepted back in, in open arms and loving arms, and it seems like he's he's not even having the talent to really back up, you know, or excuse. Not that there as ever is any excuse, but you often hear that, you know, they'll make exceptions for a certain level of talent. But it sounds like uh like that, that that's not even the case here. And that's it's frustrating. <laughs> well well definitely, and I think it's just really important what Jen said in the end of the towards the end of the piece that the MLB actually has a domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse policy, but the penalty or the suspension for perform enhancing drugs or being implicated or involved or using them is more than domestic violence, sexualized, sexual assault or child abuse. Like I find that staggering and like unbelievably unjust. The penalty you'll get for doping up is more than if you violate another human being. Like, For one, you're hurting the sanctity of the game, but for the other, you're just hurting women. So, you know, it really <laughs> it really makes sense when you think about it, Shireen. It really, really does make sense. Also, how how news, naive of me. <laughs> yeah, what are you thinking? Come on, priorities. Yeah. Uh, so also this week, our good friend Pete Rose was back in the news. Um, Pete, of course, is a baseball legend, but who has pretty much been ostracized from the sport, except for the commentating he does on it <laughs> and the money he makes off of autographs um, because of his uh, betting on the sport and a few other fun things that that he's had. But anyways, he's been suing for defamation. So he's got this lawsuit, uh, defamation lawsuit. And in this, he's actually trying to fight against the fact that this someone made claims that he had sex with underage girls, excuse me, raped underage girls, because you cannot have sex with underage girls. But he, so all this stuff is coming out, this defamation stuff this week. And this is coming at the same time where the Phillies are supposed to be honoring Rose at the pace, at a, one of their events for Legends. So that was supposed to happen later this month. And what happens is it comes out that he's been accused by a Jane Doe of carrying on a sexual relationship with her when she was 14 and 15. And his defense is that she was already 16 when the relationship was going on. So this wasn't really a big deal. Now, this happened in the 70s. But Rose at the time was in his mid 30s, married with two children. And he was one of the most popular and famous players in baseball at the time this relationship was going on. And his entire defense is that she wasn't 15. She was 16, which is the age of consent, I think, in the state they're talking about. Shireen, can we barf? Totally. It's, it's, ugh. And the, the interesting thing is that you said he's a celebrated commentator. So even if he's not a player anymore or on that scene, he's completely immersed in the culture. Like the, the power dynamics in this are, are, are just staggering to me. I, I don't even know what to say. Like, oh, I'm just disgusted completely. And the whole argument of, oh, no, 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 no. They, you know, she was 16 in a day, not 15. And, and, and the funny thing is, is that not funny. The horrible thing is rather that in the legal system, this actually really makes a difference. Like that one day or adding that one, oh, insisting, I thought she was 16 or I thought she was 17. Like in terms of the trauma that these young women experience, like it's, no, every it's always sort of overlooked, and everyone looks to the athletes or the celebrity to to come up drum up this ridiculous defense. And to be really honest with you, I think 
very often, like I'll think about his victim, like the survivors and how they're coping and how other survivors are coping. And this is something else Jed mentioned in her piece um, about what it does to fans of the game who are survivors. Yeah, absolutely. To see them still revered in this way. And it's just, look, it's really, it, it's really sickening because this isn't a case of this is a 17-year-old sleeping with a 16-year-old, you know what I mean? And there's like these, like he was, the power imbalance, the age imbalance was extreme that there's no way that that relationship could be going on without it being a form of abuse, Um, you know? So like, I don't really care about, you know, the exact age deadline we're dealing with here. But the Phillies did the right thing and uninvited Rose to their ceremony this morning month. I actually refuse to give them credit for that. That's the bare minimum you can do. I if I had a funny discussion with my editor this week where I was like, should I cover this? And I was like, I just refuse that it's noteworthy for them to drop him for this reason. Like that can't be like something we're like, oh, wow, look at this. <laughs> like I just can't do it. With regards to this topic, like basic human decency, the bar is so low. I know. <laughs> that, you know, let's let's acknowledge them for not being, you know, proponents of super violence and, and misogyny. Like, let's give them a round of applause. Like, I agree with you completely. Yeah. Especially when, like, yeah, this defamation stuff came out now, th- these specifics. But this is this case has been ongoing, you know, so it's it's not like this is out of nowhere. All right, let's move on to the Olympics. Shereen, I love the Olympics. I'm sure you love the Olympics. It is a great platform for female athletes in particular. And I must say also, it is not charity. The Olympics has massively benefited from showcasing female athletes and their stories. Because guess what? People actually like female athletes when you give them attention (laughs) and showcase their sports properly. But anyways, um, this week it was announced that the deal seems to be official. The vote comes in a few in September for from the IOC, the International Olympic Committee. But the behind the scenes deals have been done and the Olympics will be in Paris in 2024. And Los Angeles in 2028. Now, as we are both in North America, the Los Angeles bid has been getting the most attention. I know, at least here. I don't know about in Canada, Shireen. Um, but it's it's been talked about the most. There's been a lot of excitement, a lot of bragging about how Los Angeles, unlike the Sochi's and the, you know, Rio's, like Los Angeles is going to do this right. Like there's, Los Angeles is immune to any of the bad things that come along with the Olympics. I am having a hard time buying it, as are many people. I've been discussing some of the stuff with the No Olympics campaign, which is, in case you can't decipher that, no to the Olympics (laughs) and against the Olympics uh, in LA, and pointing out that, look, this is a thing that hurts marginalized communities in the cities. And there's really no way around that at this point. The amount of construction that happens in areas that are predominantly minority areas and poor areas. So you have displacement of people. You then have the federal government right now would take over the uh, security for the games. So that means you're going to have like 
ICE working in all the LAPD offices and basically taking over security for uh, the Olympics. And while, yes, this is 11 years out, and so hopefully, although who knows what, what's going to happen to our societal norms, hopefully Donald Trump will be out of office there by then. Um, you don't know how early they're going to allow this to, to happen or what the lasting ramifications of such a partnership will be, but it certainly won't be positive for immigrant and minority communities in Los Angeles. And it's just bad. (laughs) I don't know how else to put it. I don't know where, how to do this, to have a place that holds such an event that I think is so important, like the Olympics, but also that doesn't hurt, sometimes irreparably, marginalized communities in the process. Well, absolutely. I think we talked about this on a previous episode about how, like, I, for one, struggle with supporting a major event like the Olympics that's, like, super high in levels of capitalism and this and amplifies you know, things that I don't believe in. There's heightened militarization of spaces. There's gentrifications of neighborhoods. We've seen this in London. We saw it in Vancouver with the Winter Olympics. Like we, we've seen this happen and in, in communities that are supposed to, you know, espouse some type of understanding of, you know, betterment of, of our own societies. And I, I do really struggle with this because there's also a place that I can watch like women's air rifle or, kayaking or, you know, celebrating sports that don't get that attention and women have these opportunities. So we have talked about this. But that being said, something that I really noticed that when you were talking about LA, there's this lot of discussion about LA getting uh, attention and discussion within media and sports circles. There's also been pushback. Like I know that for a fact, Boston recently really, really pushed back and they didn't even like uh, sort of put forward their bid because the response in Boston from the no to the Olympics was super high. And because of social media and campaigning, that voice was really strong. Boston's like, we don't want this. And I know that Boston's problematic for so many reasons. Uh, We talked about that on the show as well. But in terms of this, the activism and the folks there that really were like, we don't want this in our communities. It's a burden to municipal taxpayers. It's a burden to the community. Um, big corporations come and they make money off this. Like you said, LA is a, is a place that thrives on, on, on diversity and has different and ice being there is, is horrific for so many people. And I just don't think the good outweighs the bad in the situation like and I hope that those who are in LA and have talked about this I mean I think we were mentioning Robert Silverman's piece about uh, that uh, Bill Simmons had with the mayor and how sort of empty it was and just kept talking about oh this is going to be great for the city this is going to be great for the city well there's a lot of people that are really really concerned and um, you know Olympics actually did a poll and it was embedded into that into Robert's piece, about 69% are like, let's just forget it, (laughs) forget the Olympics in LA. And this also takes us to another, another topic, like how many cities are actually bidding for the Olympics now? Not many. I mean, like you said, the campaigns to get these to stop, we've seen the campaign successful in places like Boston and in cities all over the world, because Look, there's no overlooking how damaging the Olympics are. Rio is an extreme example, but it's a very also realistic and undeniable example of how damaging the Olympics are in the long term. And I think whenever well, we don't 
I love the Olympics, but we don't need the Olympics. People need housing and uh, food and to feel safe in their communities, right? Like those are basic needs. And if we are usurping those for sports purposes, then we are doing things wrong. And that's how I feel. And, and, and one more note on this this mayor and in this interview with Bill Simmons and this thing. So much of this has been a press super show. And I think a lot of it is, I mean, you have the Casey Wasserman who's involved with this, who is a sports agent extreme. So he gets the athletes right in on this, who would of course love it to just be in the Olympics. It's a huge, big brand thing, right? For, you know, American athletes at the Olympics are here. It's a good for the brand. Um, and then you have the mayor who has said multiple times, Mayor Garcetti, that he dreamed of bringing the Olympics back to to Los Angeles since he was like 11 years old. Like, it really seems like when you're reading this, like the main reason he became mayor was for this campaign. Like, I'm not even exaggerating. Like, it's ridiculous. And it's so, I mean, I've never heard like PR spin like this extreme for an Olympic Games where they are just putting it above all else. And look, they're smooth talkers. I heard an interview with him um, a few years ago, or maybe last year on a Bill Simmons podcast. I don't know if it was the main Bill Simmons podcast, but it was anyways, I heard an interview with him then and I was like, oh yeah, Olympics in LA, that sounds great. Of course, then I started looking into it and realized like, no, that's not true at all. Any last words on this before we move on to women's soccer? Well, um, I think there's there's something to be said about this whole conundrum of we want to support women's sports, but does it have to be you know, via the Olympics, like, does that have to be the vehicle? And why are we even in this position that we have to support something? There must be a viable way to amplify women's sports and support and develop and, you know, elevate those games without it being in such a problematic setting in this way. Like, there, we have to come to a resolution. I have no idea what that is. But, um, you know, just sort of, I'm thinking about that a lot. And I really hope that those who are in L.A., that are pushing towards it. They have, like you said, they have, you know, over a decade to sort of work at it and make sure. And hopefully the political rhetoric at the time won't be as toxic as it is now. We've had the Euros, we've had the Terminant of Nations, and we have an exciting Hall of Fame announcement in women's soccer. Shireen, you're much more of a women's soccer expert than I am, although I am a wannabe women's soccer expert. Uh, Just take it through this and please uh, mention how awesome Megan Rapinoe is. Take it away. Oh, (laughs) I thank you, Lens. Happy to talk about Rapinoe. Um, Before I talk about Rapinoe, I do have to mention kudos to the Matildas, um, the Australian women's national team who won the Tournament of Nations. They also beat the United States, which they've never done before in their football history. So I think that's really important. The game that you're referring to about Megan Rapinoe, and I love me some Pino, was the U.S. was playing Brazil and were actually down in the first half. And with 85 minutes left in the match, um, they came back and ended up winning 4-3. So I, I, this was quite late at night, and I think I was heading to bed 
bad, but I was watching my Twitter feed and trying to balance the Tournament of Nations while the Euros are happening, the women's Euros. So there's just a lot of women's soccer, which I love. So it was a pretty thrilling game, and there's all these gifs of Megan Rapinoe, who is recovering from knee injury. She actually hadn't scored for the U.S. women's national team since 2015, so like since the last World Cup. So this is a really big deal, and her recovery has been sensational. She's one of, if not the league's, the U.S. Um, sorry, the NWSL's top scorer with over. 12 goals, I believe. I think she's at 12 goals, which is, which is incredible. So, you know, all, and we, we love, we love her so much. Um, we talked about her and Sue Bird. We just love them. So, um, just so happy to see her because for me, she's probably one of those most phenomenal playmakers I've ever seen in women's, in women's soccer. I absolutely love her. And you know, I'm a diehard Canadian women's team fan, but I love, love watching. She she crosses boundaries. So wait, so what happened? So Australia won the Terminator Nations. Um, Congratulations. Uh, They beat uh, Brazil. Beat Brazil. So um, they ended up winning. Um, the Matildas won six one against Brazil, so it was a pretty. It was a very clear indication so of who was close match, close there. match, close match. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what's happening with the Euros? Uh, explain that to me. <laughs> oh. So yours is really exciting. In fact, after we're done recording the finals and I'm, I'm following Twitter, I'm totally, totally paying attention to the recording right now, but I'm also watching a bit of what's happening. The Netherlands is hosting the women's Euros and the Netherlands for the first time are actually going to the finals against Denmark. And that will be at 1700 Central East um, European time, which is 11 Eastern. So um, that's today, like actually in an hour. And I think that already they're reporting there's over 10,000 people in the streets um, in the Orange Parade area, the, the fan zone. And this is incredible. These are two teams that have actually never won the Euros before. So today there'll be a new Euros champ. And this is a tournament that had predominantly been dominated by teams like Germany and France. And I think this is, this is for me, this is exciting. Because, not exciting to see France lose out because I love them, but just see the development of the women's game and how powerful it is. And this is really important when you have teams that you wouldn't necessarily consider at the strongholds and, you know, just coming up and, and showing in Denmark like is, is one of my personal faves, not only because of Nadia Nadim, who is, um, you know, previously been mentioned on our show as an honorable mention for Badass Woman of the Week. It's just, it's the way the passion for the, for the game and in, in places where women's football is not as heightened as the men's, like Denmark, for example, um, you know, something like that. The Netherlands has a very strong history of football, undoubtedly, they really do. But to see the women's game getting so much attention and getting so much love is is really uplifting. It's really, really exciting, actually. So love it. that's that's fun. <laughs> it's it's so exciting. And um so one last thing that I wanted to to throw in here when we're talking about uh um women's soccer is uh, really fantastic news about uh, former U.S. Women's National Team goalkeeper Brianna Scurry. Love! Yeah, Brianna Scurry was elected to the National Soccer Hall of Fame, and this is important for many reasons. First of all, she's the first black uh, female player to be um, inducted, and that's that's pretty pretty incredible. And she's also the first, yeah, she's also the first female goalkeeper 
And uh, we're talking about a country with a history of really strong goalkeepers. But the fact that she's there, and, and in my opinion, and I'm not, I'm not biased, but at all, um, but Brianna Scurry's contribution to the 1999 World Cup win for the women against China has not been as amplified as I think it ought to have been. Like, it, don't forget, the U.S. won that entire tournament on penalty shots, and she stopped one from when they were playing China. And still, like, we see these images emboldened into our heads. Like, for me, It'll be um, Brandy Chastain's, you know, taking off her shirt. Like that image for me was powerful for different reasons. But I didn't see the hoopla and the fanfare about Brianna Scurry that I should have. And her comments, like her quotes are so humble. This is an incredibly humble humble person. And I'll just read this. She says, it's a fantastic honor to be inducted to the Hall of Fame. And she said this via a US soccer press release. Soccer had already given me so much more than I could possibly give back. Now to be inducted alongside the likes of Michelle Ackers, Mia Hamm, Christine Lilly, I am truly humbled. And though my mother and father have passed, I can feel their pride swell. Thank you for letting me play for you. And thank you all for this incredible honor. Like just what an amazing person to say that and also still amplifying the players that she's played with, her teammates, her former teammates. Like just what a lovely person. I'm really excited about this. I agree. And it must be said she's also a great advocate these days for concussion awareness and concussion protocol. So she's just doing so much good for the game. Just one last thing, which is really quick when we're talking about women's soccer. I just wanted to add in that uh, I just saw the news today that in Afghanistan, they're starting a premier women's soccer league. They already have an existing league, but this is really important and really, really great in terms the news hasn't been released in English. It was in Persian that the uh, report came out. But um, just amplifying in, about development and sustainability of women's soccer leagues all over the world. So that's really exciting as well. Love So yay for women's soccer. All right. Now I'm going to talk to Rhiannon Walker. Uh, Shireen, I had a great talk with Rhiannon, whose work we love here at Burn It All Down. Just taking a deep dive into the history of African Americans in tennis and uh, Black people around the world in tennis. So enjoy that. All right. I am joined now by Rhiannon Walker, an associate editor at The Undefeated, a site at ESPN that focuses on the intersection of race and culture and sports. Is that the best way to describe it, Rhiannon? I mean, you could have said race, sports, and culture, but you know, the mix, (laughs) I like the remix of it. It sounds nice. It rolls off the tongue a little bit there. Well, okay. Well, you know, I'm just just throwing out some tips there. (laughs) You know, I love tennis and, you know, I love discussing the intersection of race and sports. So, of Mm -hmm. course, I had to have you on to discuss what I'm not sure if this is an undefeated thing or if this is an if this is a week that I just didn't know about. But the undefeated, it was Black Tennis Week. Mm -hmm. So if you guys haven't checked it out, we will link in the show notes. Rhiannon did, I think it was like 100 pieces this week (laughs) on the history of, you know, African-Americans in tennis and Black people in tennis overall. She goes back more than a century. She delves. This is much more than just, you know, talk about Serena. Um, You know, there's there's a lot here. So I'm just going to dive right into it. It. Mm-hmm. But first, I want to ask you what what brought about this project? Is this a week that like is usually Black Tennis Week, or was this an undefeated thing where you you thought we need to focus in on this tennis? So we've done 
a few different weeks at the undefeated. Um, you would ask me if this was something that just generally occurred. And to my knowledge, I don't think so. Um, but it was something where last year during the Olympics, we had water week, which was run by Martinsey Johnson, one of our researchers. And it just happened to coincide with the fact that Simone Manuel won the silver medal on the 100 meter freestyle. And so we looked like, you know, we had planned this whole thing out and yeah, we had planned water week, but did we plan Simone Emanuel winning? Heck no. Um, <laughs> otherwise we'd write tons of content planning, like, you know, planning for stuff happening. Like, what? How powerful are you really? <laughs> uh, you know what? I wish I had that kind of power because let me tell you, I'd be breaking news more than the Woj bombs we got out here. So um, we did not, plan it so much so because it was something that already occurred. It was just that we've done different weeks before. And Kevin had gotten an email from a guy about the American Tennis Association having their championships in late in late July, um, early August. And we knew that that overlapped with the city open. So it was kind of like, all right, well, if you can find a way, um, this is Lisa talking to me. Lisa's like, you know, can you find a way to create a week's worth of content about black tennis? I run Remember Wednesday, which is a ton of um, sometimes archival research. I've found stories as far back as 1870. So if that tells you anything about what I can do sometimes. Um, but basically, it's just um, it's just finding different stories that one, educate people about people outside of Serena Williams or Venus Williams. As great as they are, there are so many other black tennis stars that kind of like with the Negro Leagues, they never got an opportunity to shine just because the timing wasn't right, which you know sucks to say. But um, there was just so much to do. And just if I had the time to find it, it was something that I was able to write about. And I was really pleased that, you know, we were able to get everything in because uh, when we were talking earlier, like there was a lot of research done and it would not have been able to be done in like, say, one, two weeks time. Uh, so this was a lot of fun to do. Definitely. I loved how you just tied this into society. In one of your pieces, you wrote that. Uh, going back to the nineteen, the 1890s, excuse me, there there were three things that kind of shaped uh, how black people in tennis were treated during the formative years for the sport. Break that down for me. What were those those three things? So the first thing was an 1890 law in Louisiana that simply said black and white people cannot ride in the same travel car. And this set up 1892 where um, Homer Plessy, he was a He's seven-eighths white guy, one-eighth black guy. But if you know anything about the one-drop rule, that one-eighth still made him black in a lot of the eyes of the law, even though he looked on his exterior to be a white guy. So he buys a first-class ticket, and he sits in the white car section. And, you know, he's doing this actively. Like they, I mean, again, he looks white, so unless he's telling people I'm you know, one-eighth black, they're not going to necessarily know that. Um, but he gets arrested because he is black and he's sitting in the white car and that's illegal because of the 1890 law. Fast forward to 1896, you have Plessy versus Ferguson, which sets up the constitutional, I guess the constitutional, like a law that allows for separate, but equal. Um, and within that ruling, the judges basically say that if you're suggesting that black people's accommodation in public facilities is somehow less than that of white people's well that's just in your mind which you can pretty much bring up to today if you really want to um and that it's all in your mind if you guys allow yourself to think that you're inferior then that's on you another judge said you know the law can't make you all like necessarily equals people like you know white people are obviously superior in like thought intellect 
um, just general living. So it's not like the law can make you guys somehow equal in that playing field. It can give you equal civil rights, but social rights, it cannot create equal treatment for you all. So there was one judge, it was, um, I think it was John Marshall Harlan, who basically said that, you know, equal should be equal. It's like everyone should have equal access to same public facilities. That's just the way the law sees. The law does not see black and white, um, Asian, Latinx, whatever. But his dissent would not become the rule of law until 1954 with the Brown versus the Board of Education, Topeka, Kansas. So it was one of those things where it's like, you can say that sports has not been affected by the things that happen in society, but that is just patently not true. Plessy versus Ferguson is the reason why African-Americans had to create their own leagues. That was part of the reason why they were excluded from so many different sports. Um, the U.S. Lawn Tennis Association looks at that and they exclude black people from participating um, at the Westside Tennis Club for years. Uh, and so the American Tennis Association, they are founded in 1916, November 30th, I believe. And then they have their first national championships in 1917. But Plessy versus Ferguson is also the reason why you have to have the Negro Leagues be created as well, too. You've got the Harlem Globetrotters, you've got the Harlem Wrens. Um, black people were not allowed to participate in the same leagues as white people were. Um, I would say the one exception I noted that was that in 1887, Major League Baseball excluded black people. Um, so Moses Fleetwood Walker had been playing in the majors, but he was, you know, eventually like pushed out as were other African-Americans. So that came three years before the 1990 law. But all wow. this to say that if you are open to learning about these kinds of things and understanding how that law created a situation where black people were not able to participate at the same in the same major leagues as white people and therefore had to create their own things. This is the same reason we had the black press. This is the same reason we had Black Wall Street in Tulsa, uh, Oklahoma. We had to create our own things and there was no other way around it. And for the most part, and I do, I, I hate to say it, but I also have to acknowledge that because of the fact that we had to create our own things, you had to support your own things as well. Um, black people weren't allowed to move into different neighborhoods. So one of the things my parents always talk about is that your wealthy black people, your middle-class black people, and your poor black people all lived in the same neighborhood. Everyone could see what was happening. And so it raised and it elevated, it made things seem more attainable. You, you can't deny that if someone tangibly sees a neighbor that has nice things and they live right down the same street as them, that makes it seem more feasible for them to do it themselves. Whereas once Brown versus Board of Education happened, integration started to occur, those same wealthy black people moved out of those areas. I mean, they could move where they wanted to and, you know, obviously deal with whatever treatment came their way, but they didn't have to live in the same neighborhood as all the other black people. So they did that. Um, and when you stop seeing tangible success, when you stop seeing the doctors and you stop seeing the lawyers, when you stop seeing the academics and people in your neighborhood, that changes a lot of how you perceive yourself. All that to say is that society impacts sports, but sports also impact society. As you know, 1947, We've got Jackie Robinson going to the Brooklyn Dodgers, and that's seven years before Brown versus Board of Education. You've got Althea Gibson in 1950 going to the Westside Tennis Club to Who, play in mean, the USA. Go ahead. Right, a, a lot of people, like, you know, this is one of the things in my research, everyone thinks of Arthur Ashe, but it was Althea Gibson who broke yes. the color barrier. And it's, yes. it's another example in my mind of, like, Black women kind of getting written out of history in this way. And that's the thing is, like, she had to deal with the fact that, one, she's a Black person, but then, two, she's a woman. And, you know, if you know Malcolm X in his speech, he said, you know, who is the worst treated, who is the most disrespected person in America? Black women. 
Right. And it holds true to this day that the fact that her accomplishments, the fact that she won all but the Australian Open, um, and that she is quickly forgotten all of what she won in the first Grand Slam in 1956, the French um, Championships, and Arthur Ashe won in 1968, um, and how quickly, like in just 12 years, like she's forgotten. I mean, I've written, I've read stories by like um, Bud Collins of the Boston Globe, and he called Arthur Ashe the first African American to win a Grand Slam, and I'm thinking to myself. How do you forget Althea Gibson? Seriously, like, how do you forget her? But that was one of those stories that I wrote about and it was the most heart-wrenching because I wrote about her and I came to realize that in 1996, she was actually on the verge of committing suicide because yeah. she felt like no one cared about her. Um, and in talking to the director, you know, part of that is because she was kind of an isolationist. I mean, she did like stay off to herself, but that still does not, all include like the fact that she goes to a restaurant with her former tennis, um, her doubles partner, Angie Buxton, and they have dinner set up at, um, obviously not the Westside Tennis Club, but they have it at the U.S. Open, and the former champions are all there, and they don't recognize her. They don't know who she is, and she gets turned away. And she's embarrassed by this because it's like, how do you not know who I am? It's just like, I'm the only black woman that's ever won a Grand Slam. It's just like, it's not hard to like mistake me for anybody. I'm the only one. Right. And she went on, I mean, she broke it, the the color barrier in golf, I believe, too. She went on to LPGA. Yeah, she did. I mean, there's so much about Althea Gibson that you could talk about. She's also a fantastic singer, too. She had two albums. Um, She was in a movie. She also toured with the Harlem Globetrotters. Just there's so much from the movie. If you can't tell, I love history. So it's like yeah, there's yeah. so much. There's so much from the movie that you learn, and you just sit there saying to yourself that how did I, like there were things I didn't know. I didn't know that she was suicidal. I didn't know right. that she had toured with the Harlem Globetrotters. Um, I knew about the LPGA, but I didn't know that she had been in movies or that she had this ability to sing. Um, it's just one of those things where you sit there frustrated, like why are these things not taught more extensively in school? or in college or whatever have you were talked about more broadly within the news. And then there was an interview that I did with Arthur Carrington and he had talked about how, you know, if the roles reversed, Arthur Ashe and then Althea Gibson, he's just like, I think it would have been easier for people to, you know, remember her because it's like people always want to see like men succeed at something first. Like, you know, there's yeah. how many he's like, how many um biopics do you see of men how many autobiographies and biographies do you see of these men who break the racial color barrier and compare too many Rhiannon too many (laughs) so you know it's just I just he's right but he is right like for instance Alice Coachman is the first African-American woman to win a Olympic gold medal but I mean if I didn't know any better I would have thought it was Wilma Rudolph as great as Wilma Rudolph was I mean it's one of those things where it's like I actually went out and I sought it out I was like you know I don't ever see them say she was the first so like I, I gotta go and check this out now um, but I know Jesse Owens was, though. Right. I know that definitively. And it's so important to learn this history because I know, you know, when I've written about Althea before, if you look back at the things that people said about her, uh, talking about how she's instinctively aggressive, um, mm-hmm. talking about her body type, questioning her gender even, you mm-hmm. know, it's the same stuff that we see Serena Williams deal with today. Yes. And so yes. y- you have to learn your history before you can realize, like, history is repeating itself. <laughs> Hello. So I-, I thought what was really interesting was you talked about these institutions that really kept Black tennis alive, in particular, the black press and how it, there, there was one line in there where you talked about how, you know, Jackie Robinson doesn't get 
credit for what he did in the Negro Leagues and his success in the Negro Leagues. They're forgotten kind of part of it. It almost like it didn't matter until he broke this barrier. Mm -hmm. And there's some similarities between, of course, how we talk about Arthur Ashe and how we talk about um, Althea and how once this color barrier was broken, the American Tennis Association kind of got lost in the background and shuffled into the background. How were they re- Reinventing is the wrong word, but how are they mm-hmm. finding their place and and appreciating the role that they played in in society, but also still being, I mean, there's, they still exist. They're still around. How are they handling that? Oh, man. So this is one of the things that I was frustrated. So when I, I'll be honest with you, when Lisa told me to write about the American Tennis Association, I didn't, I've never heard of the American Tennis right. Association. And I was pretty embarrassed by that fact because they are the first and the oldest black sports league. Um, in the United States, not the Negro League. So it was one of those things where I was like, well, why don't I know anything about them? Like, again, they're not in my history books. Um, they weren't necessarily taught in any of my classes. And I went looking to see like, okay, so what are reasons why I know about things? Well, I know about things because of social media. Um, I know about things because other people talk about them or they have other experiences with them and things of that nature. And I realized that I probably would have known about the American Tennis Association much earlier on in my life if they had been more like if people associated Arthur Ashe, Althea Gibson, Lori McNeil, Zena Harrison, or any number of these other black tennis stars, like, you know, from 1900 to 1980 or so on with the American Tennis Association. I mean, the reason I know that about the Negro Leagues when I was little is because of Jackie Robinson or Satchel Paige. I realized that he was right. It's just like, everyone knows Jackie Robinson was with the Negro Leagues. Like that's without, you know, question. But not everyone associates Arthur Ashe with the American Tennis Association or the fact yeah. that Althea Gibson won 10 straight women's singles for the American Tennis Association. And um, sex, it feels like it doesn't count until it's the breakthrough, which, you know, marginalizes these fantastic institutions to a damaging degree. Yeah. And I, I, I really can't understand, like they have done so much for black tennis, like the fostering of the talent, um, putting the best players against each other, getting them to the point where they could play in these opens and everything else like that. Um, and I, I was thinking back, like, you know, I know like during um, Black History Month, like I hear a ton about Negro Leagues and things of that nature. Like we have movies we watch, there's a museum that exists and all these other different aspects about it. So, I mean, I have grown up knowing about this whole entity. Um, and what I talked about with the American Tennis Association is like, for instance, like, you know that we love on Twitter or any of our social media, we love highlights and all kinds of different stuff like that. They're still around. The Negro Leagues is not. Um, I remember, I think it was... Um, now, Rafael Nadal, who hit that that shot um, on the back of the baseline between his legs and like that highlight, like that's a SportsCenter top 10 highlight right there. And I'm sitting here like, y'all, the American Tennis Association, y'all have to have plays that like pop up like that. Something like that goes on social media. That thing blows up. People, at least at the very minimum, people see the handle and now they know like, oh, you exist. Um, they have a Facebook. They have an Instagram that they don't use. They don't have Snapchat, Periscope, or Twitter. And I'm just thinking to myself, hey, you guys have managed to do something that not a whole bunch of other black organizations have been able to do, which is to stay, to stay alive. Um, you guys have to have a social media presence at this point in time, especially if a lot of the people that are attending this do tend to be um, – older and not necessarily younger. It's like you want to have these things around so people can go and find these things. A lot of your best stars are not necessarily playing in the American Tennis Association. So how do you guys get them? Maybe you don't get them to play, but how do you get them to come and participate? Because even that would, you know, 
boost like the amount of people that would be interested in coming out. Like if a Serena Williams, a Venus Williams, a James Blake, I would love to see James Blake in person or a Gail Mulphy, um, any number of little Sold Stevens or any of these other tenant, black tennis stars that are coming up. How do you get them to come to the American Tennis Association and to work with you all and find ways to get more people to know about what you all are doing? Like, how do you guys continue to uh, broadcast that stuff? Well, I think that this week was a good step because they, you know, they inaugurated or honored Richard Williams by bringing him into the Hall of Fame there, which is really important. Uh, I want to read a clip from Rhiannon's piece because she was there for Richard Williams induction. Unfortunately, Venus and Serena were not. But I'm just going to let this clip, this clip see speak for herself. As he watched highlights of his daughters who did not attend the ceremony, Williams pulled out his thick framed glasses and cracked a smile two or three times. Uh, the 100 people in the ballroom oohed and odd, while Williams looked like he was prepared to go back to his daughters and let them know the things they could improve on. Williams dressed for his induction in a pair of dad jeans, black Nike low-rise sneakers, and a shirt with his face on the front and the Ten Commandments as a coach on the back. Truly iconic, also comfortable. So that's an amazing <laughs> scene. Uh, but but it, it you know it, it made me sad because it fell under the radar that he was getting this big honor this week. And you know, I mean, his, look, his daughters didn't even show up, and I, you know, Serena's got her baby shower. Venus has a big tournament next week. But it, you know, I, I wish it was a bigger deal. And I mean, he seems like a shoe in for the tennis hall of fame, the international tennis hall of fame, which will be, I'm sure, a bigger deal. But once again, it's the thing where why, you know, why aren't we devoting, why don't we care that he's being, you know, inaugurated into the American Tennis Association Hall of Fame? And I'm sure you know this, the Serena and Venus effect, you look at the Tiger Woods effect in golf and there is none, you know, like (laughs) maybe in the fitness of golfers, but you're not seeing a huge, you know, influx of diversity in golf. But in Mm -hmm. tennis, it is you know, more diverse these days. I mean, you know, the two of the brightest stars in the women's game are Madison Keys and Sloane Stevens, who joined Serena and Venus on the Olympics team last year. It was the first time it had been all black women. The men's game is we got Francis Francis Tiafo, who, you know, is up and coming. I'm not saying it's the most diverse sport there is, but there are signs that it's improving. But I was at the City Open pretty much all week. And one of the things I noticed is while I know you wrote that Arthur Ashe fought to have this tournament in the city so that it would be more accessible to to black people and to a diverse city crowd there's there weren't that many black people the city open this this week you know i mean there's a there's a international audience that always comes to these tennis tournaments but but it does seem like in many ways despite serena's all that serena and venus have done that there's still a disconnect between the black community and tennis as a whole do you sense that and how do you think we fix that um, actually it's funny because this was something that um arthur talked to me about again and he was saying that you know, black people obviously watch Serena and Venus Williams. I mean, we would stop like what we're doing in a given day to watch them if they're like in like the process of making it to a championship that does happen. He brought up an interesting point. He said, you know, I think that black people would be more interested if it was if there was like a strong male candidate um, playing tennis right now, kind of similar to the Althea Gibbs and Arthur Ashe conversation. I mean, and it's, you know, we talk about history repeating itself, but remember all the media buzz that was going on when Arthur Ashe was coming up. I mean, 
it was different than what Althea got. And certainly Arthur Ashe was never forgotten about. Um, and I thought about it and I was like, he's probably right. I mean, you can look at, if we had a black golfer that was on the same level as Tiger Woods, done the same thing he had done. You I mean, do a black tennis if, player, yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, I wonder if it would have been as big of a deal, like, you know, black people and their interest in golf. But we had the Williams sisters and it's like, yes, there is a big audience that is watching them. That is without a doubt. I do wonder, though, if it was a black male tennis player, would we see something to similar effects of like, you know, like how much interest there was um, after Tiger Woods started to show his signs of dominance? There is always with women that, yes, they can do these great things. They still are not going to get the same level of, of attention that men do. And like even, for instance, the conversation about Serena Williams being the greatest. It's not a question. She is the greatest. She is the greatest. I, you know, I don't understand how Murray can figure this out, but like we have all this dissent going on everywhere else about whether she's just the greatest female athlete or whether she's just the great, who yeah. is doing what she's doing at her, at her age, she's going to come back from being pregnant and she's going to still come out and dominate. And it goes back to, you know, it's with, with, in women's sports, it's not just race. It's then, you know, the, the sexism. And then of course the homophobia that exists, even when, you know, that doesn't mean that all fe- female athletes are uh, gay. Of course, that's not mm-hmm. true, but it, it's this assumed when you're, st- uh, you're already subverting these gender stereotypes. That's what people mm-hmm. assume. And then, and that's when, you know, the claws come out again. Well, look, this was fascinating. I could talk to you about this literally forever, but um, <laughs> I uh, I think that um, that we will just have to have you back on. But thank you so much for joining us, Rhiannon, and thank you for doing this work because it is so important. And everyone will uh, well, we won't link to all of her articles because that would be our whole show notes. But we'll link to the whole the page itself, and I urge you all to to check it out. Now it is time for the, I would say, best segment that we ever do. <laughs> the segment <laughs> I probably look forward to the most every week. The burn pile. Uh, Shireen, did anything make you mad this week in the world of sports? <laughs> I love that question. Um, absolutely. Oh, my goodness. I think uh, for me, there was a couple of things that uh, got me really angry, but the biggest one was the last couple of weeks, we've been so engulfed in women's soccer that we forget sometimes that the men are playing too in <laughs> tournaments. And all, what happens is in professional football, and this is considered the off-season, major teams end up traveling around. So Inter Milan was playing Chelsea in Singapore. They were playing a touring match in Singapore. And the referee that was officiating was the Sikh referee, and he was actually attacked viciously online with racist insults. And it was really, really bad. His name is Sukbir Singh, and the comments about his officiating were so vile and so offensive. And yeah, I mean, we've all seen a referee make a bad call, but it was just, it was horrific. At this point, they're saying that they are investigating um, those those people that are making those uh, comments, but I'm not really sure what would to be done. Kick It Out is a organization that monitors racialized, you know, violence and abuse, and they're looking into it. All right, my addition to the burn pile is Ray Lewis, whose comments about Colin Kaepernick this week made me want to pull all of my hair out. Um, In case you're on Kaepernick Watch, like the rest of us are, Kaepernick is still not signed to a team. 
the Ravens have been going back and forth on signing him. But they called their Hall of Famer Ray Lewis to ask if he had any input. Ray Lewis, of course, was uh, involved in a murder trial um, and at the very least was passively involved in an incident that led to someone's murder. So, you know, obviously he is the bastion of morality. Um, Lewis said that Kaepernick needs to not let people know what he does off of the field. The mistakes I've made, I've never repeated twice, Lewis said in a video that he recorded on his social media, directly talking to Colin Kaepernick and the rest of the world. Of course, mind you, I am sure that if Lewis really wanted to just talk directly to Colin Kaepernick, he could find Colin Kaepernick's uh, contact information and not have to make this big show of things. But look, this is just disgusting. Uh, I I just, I've never liked Ray Lewis. He is a showboat who uses faith as a a weapon to um, lift up his own superiority and put down those around uh, him. And he's been involved, like we said, in really horrible things, has never taken responsibility for them and seems to think that he can tell everyone else what to do. And he's just the exact type, he's the exact opposite type of person as Kaepernick, who was really, you know, putting his, letting his actions back up his words. And I just, I'm so over people trying to justify why teams aren't signing Colin Kaepernick. There's no justification. There's nothing, Colin Kaepernick is doing nothing wrong. And there's no other excuse other than bigotry And so, Ray Lewis, your comments, personal comments directly to Colin Kaepernick that you uh, broadcast over the internet are going into the burn pile. Burn. Okay, now it's also my favorite segment we do every week. (laughs) Badass woman (laughs) of the week. (laughs) I think I just love everything we do. I'm just a big fan of us. (laughs) Shireen, do you want to tell us about our honorable mention this week? And then we will, uh, I'll tell us about our our queen of the week. Sure, um, definitely. Um, So this was exciting for me to see. Giovanni Merritt is the first black woman in Tennessee to get an NCAA Division I rugby scholarship. Now she will be going to Life University in Marietta, Georgia to study psychology and business. And she also plans to mentor youth. So, wow, Giovanni, like, that's amazing. Love to see more diversity in rugby. Love that. Oh, my gosh. Diversity everywhere. Uh, Our winner this week is Claressa Shields, who entered the ring at her fight this week wearing the logo or acronym. Is that the proper thing? Yes. I don't know what words are. The acronym said G-W-O-A-T for greatest woman of all time. This was for the World Boxing Council and Vacant International Boxing Federation super middleweight titles at MGM Grand Detroit on Friday night. She knocked out German, the previously undefeated German Nikki Adler at 134 in the fifth round to claim the crown and the two-time Olympic medalist 
did this at the main event called Showbox, The Next Generation. It's a Showtime fighting uh, showcase. And it's only the second time that women have headlined a nationally televised fight on Showtime. The first time was also Shields, who beat uh, Sylvia Zabatos to win the North American Boxing Federation. That was in March. So Shields is now 4-0 and in her professional debut with two knockouts. She now has the 168-pound world title. And I think that greatest woman of all time works, don't you? And I love her quote, just to read it. It's kind of the epitome of badass. Uh, yeah, I definitely felt like I was in there. In the first round, I didn't have any nerves. I wasn't nervous. I knew from the get-go, I'm about to kick her ass right quick. I'm not going home without these belts. <laughs> I was ready for a war. I was ready to dominate. I was ready to knock her out. And I was happy to get the win. <laughs> We love you. (laughs) All right, Shireen, is there anything you're really looking forward to this week or anything that kind of uh, excited you? Um, I'm like we talked about, I am so excited for the Euros finals just that are going to happen later today. Um, I did want to quickly mention that this was something I was in. I live in Ontario and I was driving around. I happened to come across the national championship of timber sport. So I got to watch the women's final wood chopping final yesterday. A little bit of that, which is not something I'd ever seen before. Wait, so what? That was really, really <laughs> this is the, that's the most Canadian thing I've ever heard. <laughs> It was it was so That's literally much like fun. in my mind Canadian sport is like hockey, curling and wood chopping. <laughs> like it was you know it's a, it's a life skill but it was so I just happened to be there and this TSN which is our national sports broadcaster one of them was 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 showing it and I'm like this was so cool there was a female announcer and these two women were on the stage and they were like whacking these logs and I'm like this is amazing it was it was it was super cool so I was really excited this was in London Ontario so I was you know those women were it was so I'm not exciting. laughing at the women I'm laughing at Shereen and Canada, no, I would like to say. <laughs> you love it. You know, when you come visit me, we were going to the Timber Sport Championship. Like, it was so much fun. And both of the women in the final were from BC because I guess they have more forest than the rest of us. I don't know. But they were from British Columbia. And it was just, it was so great to see them because, I mean, those axes are heavy. So that was awesome. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's impressive. I'm not even going to lie. Um, okay, so for me... Uh, this isn't coming out this week necessarily, but the WNBA players are going to be in NBA Live. Girls are going to be able Yay! to play video games <laughs> of their favorite WNBA players. And look, I am not a I'm not a gamer. I I, I love gamers. I'm nothing against gamers. I'm just not one. But I am going to buy this video game, and I cannot wait. I'm so excited. I like teared up when I saw the ads for it. It's a big deal. Like that's a big deal. Um, it's a, it's huge a huge deal. deal. So yeah. I'm really, really excited that uh, we're going to be able to play video games as these badass female athletes. So that is awesome. Love that. All right. Anything else, Shireen? I, th- I think we did it. <laughs> no, I'm just still reveling in the timber sport <laughs> chopping. I love it. <laughs> Now, 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 I don't know if it rivals cornhole, but it's close. It's close. <laughs> you know, that's a Canadian version, I guess you could say. <laughs> when Americans, America's drunk sport is uh, beanbag throwing and uh, Canada's is uh, 
wood chopping with an axe. That sounds about right. Sounds oh my about gosh. Right. I hope it's not a drunk sport though. Like drunk Canadians with axes. I don't <laughs> okay. know. I don't On know that, that note, I think it's time to say goodbye. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down is on SoundCloud. You can hear it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. Friends, we really need your reviews. I know it's annoying to go review podcasts. I'm very bad at doing it myself. But I will say since having a podcast, I've gone and reviewed many because I realize like what a big deal it is. We're really trying to grow our audience so we can keep making this a sustainable ideal and sustainable work uh, because we put so much into it. So that is one way without any money and very little time that you can really help us out. It's just going to iTunes and putting a review. Also subscribing, get your friends to subscribe you know just like take their phones from them and like subscribe on you know the podcast app for them i promise you like it it will be really easy and then that will also help us a lot follow us on twitter at burn it down pod and on facebook at burn it all down our website is burnitalldownpod.com. Our email, we love, love hearing from you guys on email. Trust me, like Shireen, like screen caps the emails and she like sends us to all and then she gets really mad if we don't respond about how awesome they are right away. <laughs> She's like, did you see this? Did you see this? Did you see this? And we did and we love it. So our email is burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. And once again, if you want to support us, we do still have a GoFundMe page going. These small donations are helping us out so, so much. We are so grateful. We're putting these towards our technical contributions and to getting some help weekly for the, you know, some of the editing and things like that so that we can keep this going. Uh, Speaking of editing, this is edited and mixed by Ellie Gordon Marshall. I'm Lindsay Gibbs and Shereen Ahmed is there and the rest of the crew will be back next week and we will see you then next week. Thanks guys.